Welcome to today's episode of A Facilitator's Journey. I'm joined by Miriam Hadness and we're going to talk about competition, collaboration and community. I've known Miriam for four years now. We both are very passionate about um, facilitating. What makes a great facilitator? What are the skills? What are the tools? What are the behaviours? And what are the mindset? Um, And in this conversation, I really wanted to spend some time with her to talk about the Never Done Before community, which is a thriving uh, virtual community that Miriam has crafted over the last three years. Um, I also wanted to talk to her about what collaboration means uh, to her and to me. And finally, competition, because on paper, if you look at what SOFD and NDB and workshops work, you could say we play in the same space. And we do. And in traditional terms, we may be considered competitors. However, that's not how we see each other or our businesses. So grab a cup of tea, sit down, have a listen and enjoy today's episode. Hello. Hey, Miriam. Hey, Christy. Welcome to the SOF podcast. I am delighted. I'm so happy you're here. So, Miriam, how do we know one another? I think it was uh, one of those LinkedIn connections. We met online. (laughs) We we are... (laughs) What's the female equivalent of a bromance, but it was the equivalent of that? I guess so. I guess so. I definitely remember we exchanged a few messages and then you were in Amsterdam and we recorded the podcast episode in my living room. We did. And it was just as if we had known each other for ages. I know. It's so cool. I was only surprised by your height. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone is. I think it was easier for the first time. If you've never met me in person... I am just shy of six foot and it often causes uh, an exclamation from some when they meet me because they've only ever seen me in the virtual setting or um, a photograph. Mm. How do you describe what you do, Miriam? Mm. I think it has changed so much over the past years. And I landed now with building an ecosystem for facilitators that helps them to leverage the impact of their work. And the reason why I landed there was that started as a freelance facilitator serving clients, corporate clients, and then started the podcast to educate the public in what facilitation is and what workshops can do for you. And then down the road realized that I am lifting facilitators and I'm promoting them because they are my heroes. I'm interviewing them. And then at the same time, promoting myself as a workshop facilitator kind of felt itchy because then I would be in competition with them on the one hand, promoting them on the other hand, trying to sell the same thing. That felt weird. And when I, with the start of the pandemic, started to build Never Done Before, the community for facilitators, it became even more apparent. And now with this community having established itself, I'm now at a point where big corporates would reach out to me because they need training or a workshop program for their global remote teams. 
So I have now access to facilitators who speak any language in the world, who can be available at any time, and who are glued together through shared principles and a shared understanding of what facilitation is. Long answer to a short question. No, I like it. Now, if you're listening and you know my business, the School of Facilitation, you might be sitting here going, why is Kirsty interviewing Miriam? Because what Miriam's describing, some might say, well, don't you do some of that? And this is why this conversation is called um, Competition, Collaboration and Community, because it's something that Miriam and I really recognise that we absolutely connect over the concept of facilitation, training, how do you do it, how it works. But we also have a really big connection over community. Um, we're going to talk about never done before in a moment and the first iteration of that in 2020. Uh, but we also have had some honest conversations about that perception of competition and also how important collaboration is to us. So we're going to just unpick the three C's today. If that's Yay. okay with you. Very juicy. So... Can I go back to 2020? <laughs> yes. You and I, <laughs> you and I are, you're, you're in Amsterdam. I'm in Orsford, the two A's. And pandemic hits. I, I remember reaching out to you pretty early on, just going, hey, uh, what's going on in your world? And you and I had regular conversations, didn't we, over that period of time? Yeah. yeah. And I also then remember you going, I want to do a something. And you were, and you were looking at how to create what is now known as never done before, and and the collaboration piece for me was you bought in, you invited different people in to come and sort of work up this idea with you. So I wanted to talk a bit about collaboration and your mm. experience because you've also know I now know you collaborate, and it's evolved. So I was just really curious if you could. Talk about what does collaboration mean to you? Ooh, this is a, a biggie because I think as facilitators, we are helping teams and groups to collaborate. That's our, that's our main task. Mm. And I came to a point where I don't feel ashamed anymore for the fact that I'm sometimes a very bad collaborator. Yeah. And, and I think this goes hand in hand together because at the, at this stage in 2020, I invited fellow facilitators to this collaboration to build, um, a festival and to all leave our comfort zones and explore what online facilitation is. And this was a little bit like herding cats because it was, I think we were 30 at the time. And I remember that at some point you, recommended me or you advised me, Miriam, it's time for you to step up. And this is really nice to have such a broad collaboration, but we do need a leader. We do need someone who takes a decision and says, okay, this is inside and this is outside of the scope. And I think this is then the tricky part of collaboration is to what extent, who is leading, who is following, how explicit are we about the terms? What are our explicit and implicit agendas? <laughs> so I think the collaboration works best 
the more transparent and open we are on what's in for us and everyone and um, who's leading, who's following and under which terms. And I think as facilitators, as much as we are thriving and doing and providing the grounds for others, very often what I observe, it's difficult for ourselves. Yeah. And then I think the more, the clearer we are in our value, value proposition, and what I like to call our signature, the easier it is to collaborate. Because then it's clear how we complement each other. And there's less of a fear of competition, the other see. Yeah. Because I think the two of us are a good example. We are doing pretty much the same things. The way we do it is very different. And our approach and our presence is very different. So we attract different types of people. Absolutely. And then it's easy for us to collaborate because we know what we are bringing to the table. And we know then also how to separate or say, okay, these are our domains. And then maybe we refer others to each other. Absolutely. Because I think I notice. I've learned that when you collaborate, you, you do have to be clear on the, the the rules of engagement, call them that. And when you're not clear, it makes it really super hard. And, and I think just one of my, my rememberings of that, I, I can see it pretty clearly in the summer of 2020 and being unsure, like what, what does she, what does she need from us at this time? And cause you weren't sure we were unsure and it was really interesting to be on the receiving end of that. And, and then the other one that I often talk about, and it's a principle from the world of systemic constellations, which I know you know parts of it about, is that balance of exchange. And I think that shows up with collaboration, especially in the context of the work we all did that summer, but also in community is people giving their time, but for what, like what's the balance and are, because I know some people dropped out of the, the project in the end and it, I would probably put it down to their balance of exchange. They thought they were going to get more than they got or it wasn't meeting their expectations, but there was never any of those conversations to be had it, it, because we didn't know. I really felt like we were a very experienced group of individuals, but really naive when it came to how do we work together then? Yeah. And especially in the, in the online space. So this was very new. So we're a global team from joining in from all over the world. And I think there's, it's also difficult to grasp because we measure our rewards in different terms. So there were some who dropped out because they said, I'm focusing on generating income. So all of this is fun, but I need to pay the bills. So if there's no money in for me, then I'm out. And there are others who 
who valued the the process. So I'm learning from just being in this process and sharing ideas and sharing ex experiences. And others were just there for the community and for the warm glow. And these were then the ones that were basically the founding members of yeah. Never Done Before, of the community. Love it. So just on collaboration, from your perspective, what makes collaboration work from a business perspective? Clear terms, mm -hmm. good communication, including not only the clarity of our words, but the vibes and the chemistry. Yeah. It needs to be fun. If I don't enjoy spending time with someone, I cannot collaborate with them. And then the complementarity and skills. So um, what is there to learn for me? How can this collaboration um, help us to both provide service or product that um, is better than what I could have done alone? Yeah. And what would your watch outs be to someone who's going, I'm being asked to collaborate on a project? Like, what would do you say watch out for? Competitive mindset. So if I can sense that there is um, a hidden agenda or it's the me first kind of thing. Um, so a lack of generosity. I think collaboration comes with a heartfelt giving mentality and sharing mentality um, because we believe that we will both benefit from the collaboration. And I think if one comes in with a taker mentality, I think I sense that and that's a watch out. Um, someone who's not reliable. And something that I've also learned recently is um, also the capabilities in, well, it depends on what we are collaborating. Um, but if it's, for instance, an open enrollment product, is this person also willing to get their hands dirty and do the sales? Or is it just the behind the scenes happy designing? Everyone loves to design. Nobody wants to sell. So, um, so these tasks must be shared equally, um, or at least discussed. Yeah, and who if brings not, in what? And if that's if someone doesn't want to do the selling, for me, especially in the way you do your open programs, it's then acknowledged on from a financial perspective. So, if all you're going to do is design and deliver, okay, that's X percent, and we're doing all the selling here through NDB or workshops work. This is our percentage. And I think that's fine. I think it's fair as long as it's clear up front. And I must say, this is something that I truly admire in your communication, how you run your business. You're so crystal clear of, okay, I refer you to a client. This is the percentage I take. I do this. This is the share I take. So everything is so explicit and crystal clear. I think, um, yeah, I can learn a lot from you in this regard. And uh, would it help? if you knew that that's taken years of practice for me, because I am I'm not surprised, not the clearest of individuals. So Brené Brown is rattling in my head right now. Clear is kind, unclear is yes. unkind. Yes. And the number of times the facilitators who, or the trainers who work with SOF have said, oh, could you confirm the pricing or can you confirm the day rates? And then I sit there and get my knickers in a twist. Uh, British phrase, 
get panicky and worried. Um, I now have a really clear um, letter of engagement. That's what Moon's mm. referring to. Uh, it was legally drawn up. So it just really clearly states this is the work we're asking you to be part of. This is the client. This is the expectations. And this is the financial remuneration. Yeah. And there's always that's that's sort of shared and it's very very clear and I also say to the facilitators I'm really comfortable to tell you what the whole price is and you can see really clearly what SOF what slice SOF is taking and I know that's really unusual that isn't a common practice like some business owners listening to this might be sort of thinking right now are you foolish but I my attitude is if I'm just transparent it's just really easy and I yes I like that. And I just want to share from my experience that when I started to work with associates, it took me half a year to realize that I'm overpaying them. And by overpaying, I'm not, I don't want to sound greedy. I just realized that if I'm not making a reasonable share from this work and with Munich, remunerating myself for being in touch with the client, um, nurturing the relationship, answering to all the email requests, um, also delegating the coordination of all the facilitators, because now it's a team of 15. If I'm not taking this into account, the business is not sustainable, and then they won't get the work and be paid on time. And in the beginning, I thought, so I always have this kind of very community approach. <laughs> I'm growing up slowly, but I still have everything that I do is somehow, oh, let's do it together. It's community. So um, in the beginning of this um, big project, the first one, I only basically earned money from it when I was hosting a workshop, delivering myself. And then I realized that this is not how it's supposed to be. It, the moment where I'm in the role of the agency, then I must be paid through a share when someone else is delivering because my role has changed. And, um, and therefore, I think this is what associates or other business owners don't necessarily see how much work and time and responsibility and risk there is involved um, that needs to be that needs to be remunerated because otherwise it's not it's not sustainable for me and then there's no job for the associates. Uh, this is a whole other conversation, and I absolutely agree. Like, how do we do the pricing? How do we slice and dice that big figure that people see, uh, and, and then it feels fair and right between all parties. Um, but that's another episode that we're going to do. Probably, you welcome to join. I'm doing it with Jody Rogers. She and I are going to be talking pricing. Um, so you touched into a few things there. Um, community. So I know community is a really big thing for you, uh, as it is for me, and as you say, same and different. So back to 2020, and I think it was November. 15, 16 or 17? 17. Friday. Uh, and the first never done fest before festival. 20. Happened. 20. November. 20. I have it there on the wall. In 2020. 
And basically, so do you want to describe what the festival is about? Um, yeah, uh, the original idea was that facilitators, podcast guests, actually, I invited podcast guests to contribute a workshop to the festival. And the only condition was that they had to do something they've never done before. The reason was that I went to conferences and I was constantly underwhelmed and I saw all the creativity and potential in my podcast guests, but I never saw a platform where they could actually really show that. And I wanted it to be global so that everyone has access. So to be truly global, I thought that having a festival for 24 hours in a row is the best possible idea. And I had the vision that if I'm having an online festival, I want to have this feeling. And that's something that came up in these co-creation sessions with these 30 facilitators. That how can we create an experience for everyone when they join the festival, independent of the time? So my vision was a lobby. Everyone comes into a lobby and then they go into the workshop rooms. And back then, all these, even Zoom wasn't what it is today. So all this technology didn't exist. So we had a lobby, which was basically a Zoom room. So everyone I think could, I was in that with yes. various others. Okay, we, had the we had the best times in the Zoom room. I think three hours, well, half an hour before the festival started, the mural board, the mural board wasn't ready yet. Nothing was ready. So everyone was coming into the lobby. I was selling tickets as we started and thought that I'm selling tickets to something that I will never be able to deliver. I was very close to a nervous breakdown and I actually had my nervous breakdown. You did after it. You I held think, it together and then just yeah, afterwards, literally. My partner broke up with me six hours before. <laughs> hey, my partner broke up with me two weeks before. So you and I were in a right old bloody state, but that's another story for another time. How to run a business on heartache. That could be our cha next chapter we'll talk about. Anyway. And the beauty was, and I think this is why it became a community, although I never planned to host a community, was that with the invitation that the workshop hosts had to do something they've never done before, we created a space where everyone learned, but nobody teached, taught. Nobody was teaching. Because... If you, if you share something for the first time, you also learn and it creates, um, a vulnerability through taking the risk and, um, having all of these sessions and going from session to session and being, um, tired and exhausted and vulnerable together and always coming back to the, to the lobby and being confused because we couldn't find the links. I think this created a bond yeah. that was unprecedented. I, I also like the one memory that's just coming to my head is it's when Team America turned up at the wrong end of the day. And do you remember that like, you were... <laughs> yes, they arrived. We were already drunk because we just we closed drunk. the festival. Yeah. And they came in and were like, okay, so we're ready for the workshop. Oh, this was 24 hours ago. We and nobody had even... <laughs> And nobody even had uh, realized because everything right. went so wrong. But it was a good role. And then from on the back of that festival, uh, 
you created the Never Done Before community. So what what is it like running, I don't know if there's the right word, running a community? So what's it like leading a community? Building. Building. Thank you. It never stops. Mm. It never stops. And it's, um, I realized that, and we are now, as we speak, having a, a quite serious conversation within inside the community because it was built during the pandemic where most of us were in lockdown and we had the desire for community and we were craving community and we were craving a space where we could be vulnerable and real together. And was never done before, we created exactly that. And everyone was thirsty for experimenting and testing and doing this with, yeah, facilitators from around the globe. And there was no alternative, so to speak, or no physical alternative. So in the beginning, it was relatively... <laughs> no, every stage had, had its own challenges. Because in the beginning... I had the impression that I have to run it, as you say. I had the impression that I have to run the community. And in the beginning, I didn't want to build a community. So my walk workaround was, you can purchase a ticket for the festival next year and participate in everything that we do in order to co-create the festival along the year. So I invited podcast guests to host workshops and I designed the program and the community was actually around participating in other people's workshops and learning from that. And then the next year I realized that we have so much capacity inside the community. So why would we invite only external guests? Why don't we promote community members to host their own workshops? So I slowly transferred autonomy, responsibility, um, and visibility to the community members. And this became then a very different learning experience. And then more community members contributed um, workshops to the festival. And now we're in a phase where it's not enough to just contribute and do workshops. So, um, and there are more face-to-face -face opportunities. So what is really the essence of our community? And now we realize that we thrive in working together with a shared goal. So either preparing a workshop for the festival, working on a client's project, or designing a course together. So as a next step now, we'll double down on that and see um, how can we collaborate on client gigs, on courses? How can we really join forces to create something for the outside world, not only for ourselves? And yeah, shifting gears in the global community is like pivoting an oil tank. It's um, hard work because we have to communicate, we have to get everyone on board. And people don't want to know what's in it for them as well. Like, how do I do this and it's a different way of working again isn't it yeah and again it, for everyone it's different we have community members i never see them but below the surface they're connecting they have coffee meetings with everyone else they're watching all the recordings and they love the community and others they are active and they comment on all the posts and they're asking questions and they're hosting workshops so everyone is interacting in a very different way with the community 
And it's difficult to know. Yeah. So I, for a short period, we had a community at SOF for two years. And I found it really hard because I probably never got past what you described as like year one, year two, where I thought I had to do everything and need everything. And I couldn't see through how to make the shift and the change. Um, and also something you mentioned, the changing dynamic of the landscape of people going back into the world of work and not needing all the virtual connection anymore. That also became an interesting challenge because not everybody was coming along to sessions and therefore I was like, oh my God, do people not want to do this anymore? And I felt like I was putting a lot of my time and energy in, but for what return, I wasn't too sure. So it felt, it's hard. I found it really hard uh, personally. And I think that was one of my next questions. It's like if others are sitting out there going, oh no, but I really want to create a community. Um, I'll flip it this time. Like, What are some of the challenges that, you just think are common when it comes to creating community? Mm. I think the attracting the white people is the first. So a community is only as strong as its members because it's not about me. If it was about me, then it wouldn't be a community. And still people come because of me, because I'm the face and they know me. So I would say 90% of our community members join because they hear me speaking about the community on the podcast or they know that I'm building that. So they, what I say and what I represent resonates with them and that's why they join. So it's a specific group of people. And, and then I think it's the, it's a balance between structure and emergence and I think I'm in the beginning, I was too structured. So everything was scheduled and programmed a, a bit like what you described in, um, in the first year of um, SOF. And then I went into the other extreme now where it's totally emergence and totally emergence has worked beautifully for a year. I have seen facilitators flourish. They didn't call themselves facilitators at the beginning. And in a year's time by connecting, experimenting, participating, they are now invited on podcasts um, and are delivering amazing, beautiful work. And now this doesn't work anymore. Because you need a critical mass of those who are curious and just jump on everything and are active because they're thirsty, they're like sponges. And you need those who are more experienced and are willing to share and actually offer their knowledge. And there must be a balance. If there is an imbalance, then the system doesn't work anymore. And then the question is, what do you need to provide in order to attract both and keep both happy? And I think this is very difficult. And then I think the other thing is pricing. <laughs> Again, we always end up talking about money because there, um, there are many free communities out there and they're either around a product or around a method. But I think who was it who said, if you're not, if you're not paying for, um, for a product, then you are the product. 
I like that actually. So um, at NDB, we um, the strategy was right away that we have a rather high price tag because we want people to have skin in the game, and there, and then it's important and, and difficult to communicate that what they're paying for is not necessarily the services that we that they get because it's not a it's the community itself it's an entry barrier by which they show that okay i have skin in the game i'm interested and i'm putting my money where my mouth and where my heart is and thereby i self-select into a community where others self-select into as well and this works and at the same time then also revealed um, how exclusive it is um, and exclusivity can be a good thing, but not if it excludes people who should be included. And by that, I mean, if someone is a master facilitator um, earning an income in Brazil, they simply don't have the same purchasing power as we have here in Central Europe. So we now have a purchasing power adjusted fee so that we're not giving out scholarships. Why would I give a scholarship to a master facilitator just because their currency is weak? It sounds so wrong. So now we have, um, yeah, purchasing power adjusted fee. So whoever joins from the global south, um, we convert the, um, the membership fee. Um, yeah to something that represents their purchasing power. Yeah, because I think one of the things I was going to ask is, like, what are the financial considerations of running a community? Because again, I think a lot of the costs are hidden from everybody else. Yeah, yes. Um, and there are so many, there are different costs on different levels. So there's, of course, all the tech so I think I spend 3000 euros per year on subscriptions and <laughs> automations to get everything running. And then I also realized, and that's an interesting aspect of the structure and emergence, there is a crowding in and there's a crowding out effect. So I realized that if I schedule too much and take too much space in the community, I'm crowding out. Um, those who would like to contribute, but then they don't dare, they don't find the space, or they think, oh, if Miriam is doing that, who am I to do it? Sounds silly, but that's a fact. And then there's a crowding in of um, how can I create invitations and structures that make it easy for community members to take space. So we have automations that people can just put their sessions into our calendar with a click. And then I also realized that I cannot be inside the community all the time and answer to all the posts and to take care of all the members and do all the onboarding process and all the exploration calls. So um, I hired a community manager, uh, call her community facilitator, Anushka, um, and she's helping me a lot with that. And that's a constant cost cost money. And then um, I have another assistant who helps me with the entire back end and updating email sequences, writing a newsletter, informing about the sessions. <laughs> this and this costs. And then there's communication bit. 
um, because we want to communicate also to the outside. So social media web presentation. So I have a copy and ghostwriter for that. Also costs money. Exactly. And 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 we haven't even talked about you paying yourself for your time and your your service and doing what you do. So there's there are multiple costs which I think sometimes what I felt felt hidden. Uh, but again, that could be my naivety that not everybody realized what it takes to make it just even just tick over. There's a there's a flat monthly fee that's probably a bit higher than most people would have um, expected. Exactly. And then it's um, it also takes some entrepreneurial skills to then manage the funds over the year. Because if most community members pay um, the yearly fee at once, then you have to make sure that, oh, you're not so excited about the money um, that you spend it all and invest it. And then you cannot pay your staff um, from August or September. There is definitely that. Um, so this is probably where we then step into the world of competition, because as we both said, and I said at the beginning there was a point where there was the SOF collective and so we had a community space and you could go well that was a direct direct competition to what NDB does um you and Miriam talk about similar things uh we both do work in-house for corporates and we work with their in-house L&D teams or their managers and their trainers and, and coach people how to facilitate and train um and you from the outside looking in, you could go, well, aren't you competitors? Why are you talking? Why are you, why are you friends? Uh, and then you and I were sitting at your kitchen table this summer and we were saying, does it ever feel like competition? And you gave me a really interesting answer that I wasn't expecting. I was wondering if you could share with the listener what you said to me. Yeah, it has evolved. And I think um, coming back to what I said earlier, especially in the beginning, I was... Um, yeah, I was sensing the competition and um, a little bit fearful, definitely insecure. Also because I wasn't really sure what NDB stood for, what I stood for, what I was actually doing, because all of the, none of what I'm doing today was planned. <laughs> I would love to say that I was super strategic on how to build my business and how to leverage the podcast. Not at all. Um, and I think if I'm not sure what my value is and what sets me apart, then how can I embrace collaboration without fear of competition? And I think it was then, yes, throughout the years, um, us always having somehow quite open conversation. How is it going for you? What are the struggles with the communities and with clients? Um, and then also seeing where our differentiating factors are. I was part of NDB for the first couple of years and I love it. I just love being able to contribute and be part of the community. Uh, did I ever think, gosh, this is a really big competitor to SOF? Yes and no, lightly yes, but also I could see it was different to what we were doing and who I was working with. I've always had a big leaning into the corporates and working with corporate companies and the collective, as it's known, is, has always been a, um, a smaller side of the business. So I always knew that you were offering something 
different and and rightly so I think the other piece so that you've said without saying it is being clear on our values because I think if if we're not clear about what our values are and our beliefs that's when the wobbles can happen so I have a really big value of um, abundance a really big abundance mentality Um, and therefore I could see the absolute benefit of what NDB does and workshops work your podcast because the way I see it is it's all for the greater good of the industry it's for the greater good of the facilitators and the trainers who join NDB uh, or touch into SOF because ultimately that means we are creating better learning experiences workshop experiences to enable our clients to succeed and to thrive so that's that's why it felt okay and and actually, I don't know. I, I just think there's enough to go around is the other thing. There is enough out there. I think so too. And for me, over the years, what I also got to appreciate is not everyone who offers facilitation training or facilitation services has the same understanding of what facilitation is as we do. And I think that it's so important that we join forces as collaborators, although we are offering similar things, to show what facilitation really is, that it's not about making a quick buck, that it's not about us and performing, that it's not about selling many workshops, but it's about being in service of the group, working on our inner demons and our mindset and our triggers and learning to listen and to ask questions and to be present and to to thrive in conflict and help our clients to do that and i think the more we can help um, companies understand what facilitation is what the benefits are if we help managers to become better facilitators, they will see the value and then also spend more money on facilitation. I think it's like when you when you don't know how to cook, you cannot enjoy a good meal and you will not spend good money on a good meal. But once you understand what cooking is about and the value of ingredients and you enjoy cooking yourself and you invest in your own kitchen, then you would go and to a star restaurant and really spend money for a good meal because you can appreciate it. And I think with facilitation, it's ultimately the same. Oh my same. God. Can I, this morning, I have literally had a conversation with a potential client and uh, I said, what, what, what drew you to look for some facilitation training? And she said, because we've been using some external partners for all hands meetings, workshops, and I've seen what good looks like. And I've realized we don't do that. And I want us in our business to get better. And I'm like, awesome, this is good news. And so they then said, can you, can you come and help? And it's to your point, they didn't, they knew how to eat food, but they didn't know what great, what great food looked like or tasted like, or the ingredients of putting it together. So I think that's for me is I'm with you. And, and then from my perspective as well, and people might think I'm bonkers, I am the first to talk about NDB or workshops work or people like Leanne Hughes or um, uh, Douglas over in America when I'm in podcast mode 
or when I'm talking to other people, I'm like, oh, no, you need to go and check out Miriam's work because this is what she does. And she does a great podcast. And and people go, oh, and they, the people look surprised that I'm not just keeping it for myself because that doesn't feel right, though. Also, I think it's um, it's not thinking long term because eventually they will find out anyway. Right. And because all the information is then accessible. And then it's, if I think we're working in a trust business and we build trust by, be, by transparency and by being in service. Yeah. I think also we can build trust of those around us in our own communities by how you and I show up and how we work with one another and support one another and talk about one another. And hopefully people listen to this or see us in social media land and they go, oh, oh they're, they're really connected or they, they talk positively that this, there's a good thing going on here. I mean, let's be really transparent. I've asked you to help me with a piece of work with a client because of your language capability plus your amazingness around facilitation and training. So we, we, we've worked together at another level as well which would never have happened if we didn't trust each other, knew that we had this synchronicity of opinion or way of talking and coaching and teaching. So, yeah. And then it's works. fun, right? Uh, when we then meet for to prepare one of these sessions, it's just like, it's a ping pong. It's a fun, <laughs> fun use of, uh, of our time, right? Um, and I get to, to practice my French. You do. Miriam's doing a course for us in French, which I'm eternally grateful. Thank you so much. Um, okay. So we've talked about collaboration. We've talked about community and we've talked about competition. I have some quick fire questions that I ask all of the guests. Are you up for answering some of them? Can I say no? Yeah, if you want to. <laughs> I guess I did ask you a very close question there, didn't I? <laughs> Oh, this is what happens when you interview facilitators. I'm going to ask them anyway. Uh, what advice would you give to someone starting out as in the world of facilitation and training in their business? Just do it. So every time you have the opportunity to facilitate, take it. And every time you can be in a well-facilitated workshop, take it. Nice. Uh, who do you follow in social media land that you think others should know about? Thomas Lantala. Yes. Amazing content. Facilitation hacks. Yeah. I echo that. We'll put his link below. Uh, what book do you recommend? Don't Just Do Something But Stand Here. Ooh. That sounds interesting. What's that about? It's about facilitation is not just about the doing, it's about the being, it's about holding space, it's about presence, it's about listening, not about the activities and methods. Do you know who wrote that book? Mm, I would have to look it up. We're, we're Don't just do something, stand there. That's the name of it. Thank you. Well, Miriam, thank you for being on the show, being on my podcast. I really, really appreciate it. It's uh, great to be able to sit and just talk to you. And I could easily have carried on chatting, but we're going to leave it there for today. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. 